0: i hit my
1: limit this time it's monday morning november 22nd thanks for hanging out with us here on real talk thanks for downloading the show if that's how you're catching us later in the day later in the week this episode is presented by our friends at bitcoin well i've been telling you that they uh of course are pretty proud as you would be to be among the upper half of canada's top growing companies for 2021 on the globe and mail's report on business three-year revenue growth more than 254 percent and another big headline for the bitcoin well team last week striking a deal to add 100 more bitcoin atms to the fold a hundred more of them they're canada's only publicly traded bitcoin atm company you can find out more about what they do and why you should reach out to them under the sponsors tab on our website ryan
2: Real talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson.
1: We've got a big show in store for you. This is a, this is a big week for the show. Tomorrow we celebrate our 1 year anniversary. The 1 year anniversary of our first episode, which is hard to believe in an amazing lineup. I'm looking forward to conversations tomorrow with legendary Canadian author Malcolm Gladwell and prominent defense attorney, maybe the most prominent in Canada, Marie Heinen. Uh, those will be back-to-back interviews on tomorrow's show. We're also going to review our most recent question of the week presented by our friends at Y Station. We've asked you over the last week or so, what were the moments, the interviews that really stood out to you as meaningful? What, what were the ones that, that uh, you'll always remember or at least remember looking back on our first year we'll bring you some of the highlights and some of our thoughts as a team as well that's coming up on tomorrow's show november 23rd Uh, tell your friends we're looking forward to those two guests and to celebrating uh, what a lot of people didn't think we could pull off uh, including on some days ourselves but here we are a year later and really excited about it in just a moment i'm going to talk to two moms Uh, Who also happen to be physicians Uh, One of them an ER Doc one of them a pediatrician You've probably seen over the Weekend uh, pretty Exciting footage of Big big courier type Vault type setups coming off Aircraft the first vaccines For kids 5 to 11 Are on Canadian soil right now and that means within Any number of days we could See kids age 5 to 11, start to get vaccinated. We know that some of you probably have very real and very fair questions about this. Now is your time to get them in. We'll be keeping an eye on our hashtag, Real talk RJ. We'll be keeping an eye on our live chat on YouTube. If you have questions, you, you can also send us an email anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. We'll keep an eye on the inbox. But if you want to make sure we see it, I would say the live chat or the hashtag is probably the way to go while we're doing this live. You can always follow up your thoughts with us on past interviews as well. Another prominent story over the weekend that I know that no doubt some of you are paying attention to, maybe some of you were there, uh, the United Conservative Party's AGM, their annual general meeting uh, down at the uh, Gray Eagle Resort and Casino located on the Sutina Nation uh, right around Calgary. Uh, This was the one where a lot of people were wondering if there would be uh, a prominent and pronounced challenge to the premier's leadership, to Alberta Premier Jason Kenney's leadership of his United Conservative Party. Not so much, not so much through the way of of an oncoming train or of the Kool-Aid man kicking through the drywall. Oh, yeah. Time to shake things up. Rather, subtle rumblings, right? A few people in attendance making their presence known, Brian Jean included, but the premier doing his best to rally the troops, so to speak, present a picture of positivity, the messaging, Alberta's Back, That was what Jason Kenny was telling the, the crowd, the loyal, the faithful, several standing ovations, some people reserving their applause and in a statement of of whatever it may be. I'm going to get to an email from a real talker by the name of Marshall in just a moment. But I'm curious to know what you make of what you saw or didn't see over the weekend. Tyler Dawson's got a piece. He's the Alberta correspondent for the National Post. You can read it at nationalpost.com. Dawson's headline reads, A drama-free UCP convention ends with Kenny plotting a comeback and his foes flustered. Dawson writes, Whatever Kenny's future might be, there was no open revolt at the Gray Eagle Resort and Casino sitting alongside Calgary's city limits. Depending on who you ask, this might have been unity of a sort no big headline emerged, a victory, several on Team Kenny believed. He goes on to quote the premier, who said, I feel more confident about my leadership today than, frankly, I have in a very long time. After having had a chance to encounter our grassroots members directly, person to person, Kenny said the next day. It's an interesting take from a premier, that's been, of course, languishing with very low popularity, public support right around the 20 percent mark uh, to put it in terms that maybe sort of, you know, the average person might understand some that doesn't obsess over politics and political polling. You know, popularity wise, you'd hope to have 45 to 50 percent. You'd be thrilled with 65 percent. We've seen some off the charts numbers with regards to popularity through the course of covid as as populations kind of banded together, especially in the early stages. So you'd see some premiers like in Quebec for a time in B.C., premiers polling up around 80, 85 percent, but 20 low, no matter which way you slice it. So for the premier to say he's never felt more confident in his leadership in a long time, it says something probably a about how the premiers felt about his own leadership and b about the message that he's trying to send, the message that he's trying to convey about this weekend, right? If you're Team Kenny this weekend, what you want to do is deflect the focus away from Kenny and put the focus on to, you know exactly who I'm about to say, Rachel Notley. That's the goal, right? Listen, if if, if the Unity Project fails... What that means is a return to a Rachel Notley-led NDP government, and that's clearly what the message was over the weekend. Whether or not it resonated remains to be seen. Also, keep in mind that AGMs, annual general meetings for political parties, meetings like these draw out the hardest core supporters. These are the hardest core supporters of the party, so to get a sense or rather, to to, a, to draw your gut instinct or to base your gut instinct on your own personal popularity as a politician or the future viability of your party based on an AGM only is a dangerous endeavor. My friend Charles Adler had an interesting comment relating to Tyler Dawson's National Post piece where he said this post story is a portrait of Kenny leading the United Conservatives to victory in 2023. But here's a pesky fact for those getting paid to portray a hobbled horse as a triple crown winner. Jason Kenney's approval number is in the 20s, the gates of hell. Nobody says it quite like Chuck. We got an email from Marshall to talk at RyanJesperson.com discussing the constituency association votes. Remember, we won't get too into the weeds on this, but we talked to you about this late last week. If they got 22, they could make the leadership review earlier. They did, but it's not. Marshall says the premier won't accept third party auditors, won't accept one member, one vote, won't accept any attempt to stop him from cheating. He'll do all this at an AGM so he can control who attends and limit his risk. Interesting, by the way, to see Dear Jim McClain, she's been on the show before, a podcaster, a political podcaster, reputable, fair, balanced, reasonable. She's been on this show before booted from the AGM. She was in. She had her press credentials booted. Those that were doing the booting told her that they don't recognize podcasts as viable media these days. I beg to differ. Back to Marshall's email says the premier will do all this in the spring. The leadership review so that farmers can't come and vote. Right tactical farmers will be getting the crops in marshall says so no leadership review that is truly by the people for the people but a leadership review by the premier to save the premier no transparency for us no faith in our bylaws nowhere to go from here this is from marshall a loyal conservative he's in touch with the show from time to time says we reap what we sow good luck with less than 30 seats in the next election and then a proclamation says marshall the ucp is dead Says we've got Judas Jason Nixon raising money and support for his leadership run. We have Brian Jean making noise to become the next leader. And and kudos to Danielle Smith, who's thrown her hat in the ring. Doug Schweitzer looking for an opportunistic moment to pounce from the shadows. No skin in the game. Hey, why don't we have Jeremy Farkas jump into the race as well? The face of Alberta has changed and we keep on regurgitating the same old, same old You know, I was saying to my friends this weekend, we've got this group chat. I've told you about it a little bit, and a couple of them reached out and wondered what I thought about some of the names that are being tossed around for conservative leadership moving forward. Brian Jean, Danielle Smith. I said, you know, it kind of reminds me of the CFL, the Canadian Football League, where it's just like the same eight or 10 coaches that just keep getting hired and fired and going to different teams, Right. You say the name, you just don't know what team they're on, but everybody knows who they are. Is it the 1990s over again? Is it the early 2000s over again? The same names that couldn't win elections before are now back as the fresh new faces of the party to bring the UCP back into public favor. I don't know. Marshall says we need the courage and wisdom of the MLAs who had Allison Redford removed. The strength when the members of Parliament removed Stockwell Day. If only our current MLAs had one ounce of integrity, we wouldn't be at this crossroads. Without our MLAs standing up for us, our last line of defense, we have toiled in vain. Kenny has turned us into the roadkill of the political landscape of alberta ask the real people in your life says marshall they will tell you the truth the ucp is dead the party belongs to jason kenny good luck to all who will be stuck in alberta under the ndp with better things to do says marshall signing off Let me know what you think about Marshall's assessment. If you were at the AGM this weekend, we're especially interested in your take on what went down or what didn't and why you know how to find us. You know how to be in touch with us. It's always great to hear from you. Our friends at McBain camera want to remind you that this is the time of year where the McBain holiday sales are on. And that includes the Nikon black Friday sales. Capture your iconic moments with the classically styled Nikon Zfc camera Features precision-carved aluminum dials, engraved markings, mechanical controls for shutter speed. Equipped with a very angle vlogger screen, hides away when you're not using it. How clean is that? Right now, you can save one hundred dollars on the Nikon ZFC and the sixteen to fifty millimeter lens kit for just thirteen ninety nine ninety nine, including a free Roots shoulder bag. You can visit McBeanCamera.com today to see a full list of Nikon on black friday deals McBain create to inspire our friends at Freezen brothers are all about family i've been telling you of course you know they've been family owned and operating for more than 65 years well at friesen.com you can find more details on exactly what a holiday feast from friesen brothers can look like Why not leave all the work to Friesen's team of Red Seal chefs? A pickup holiday feast ready to pop into the oven while you fellowship, while you invest your valuable holiday time into your family. You can find more about everything that Friesen Brothers has in the celebration of Christmas online at Friesen.com. Well, as mentioned, it's probably the story of the weekend. And if you're a parent or a caregiver, an aunt or an uncle, a teacher or somebody that cares deeply about a child aged five to eleven, it might be the story you care most about this month. Vaccines are officially touched down in Canada in a matter of days, certainly in a matter of weeks. Parents will be able to take those little ones to roll up their sleeves and get the shot. A couple of tweets caught our attention over the past couple of days, like this one from emergency room physician Dr. Shazma Mathani. She says Health Canada has approved the Pfizer vaccine for five to 11 year olds. I'm ecstatic, she says, to be able to get my five year old vaccinated ASAP. What about this one from Dr. Taysin Lada, who said, parents and caregivers reply to me with your questions about the COVID vaccine in this age group, and I'll do my best to answer. She's a pediatrician, so you know that people appreciate her perspective. We're grateful that both docs have agreed to join us first thing on this Monday. Good morning to both of you. Uh, Dr. Mithani, why don't we start with you? I mean, you're using those party emojis. This was a big deal for you. You say you can't wait to get your five-year-old in there. How come? Uh,
3: well, I mean, this is just a miracle of modern science, right? I'm just so, so excited that, um, health Canada has approved this, that, uh, we've been able to find that, it, <clears throat> excuse me, that it's safe, um, and that my my eager five year old can finally be protected. I mean, she's in kindergarten; she's going to school. Um, she's for sure the one the one person in our family that we're the most worried about catching COVID and bringing it home. And so, super super excited when I came home and told her the news on Saturday morning after uh, my night shift. She was was pretty pumped too. So. Um, we're, we're all really excited to get this going in our family.
1: It was, it makes it interesting, especially because she's at the lower end of that age spectrum. She's the youngest you can be to get the shot. Any, any hesitation there whatsoever? Or are you just bullish on this?
3: I mean, I'll be honest at the first um, when we were kind of first starting to talk about five to 11 year olds, of course, it was hesitation only in the sense that I'm making a decision for my for my kid, not just myself. Right. So I think that I do want to kind of validate the, the hes- hesitation that parents are likely feeling. But of course, after looking through the data, um, I, I did have a thread attached to that tweet that uh, the first part of the tweet that you showed that kind of showed through my reasoning as to why I'm uh, really excited, really comfortable with my decision to vaccinate. Uh, my daughter. Um, but yes, I think that hesitation is natural. It's just important to follow the science to make sure that you talk to people who are trusted, um, not just do a Google search and kind of go down the, the rabbit hole of misinformation, but really to um, uh, to listen to people who know uh, what's happening and, and to listen to trusted opinions.
1: Well, that's why we're grateful that both of you are here. Dr. Latt, is, is there a same sort of a a balance here to your perspective in the sense that this is personally encouraging to you and professionally same as?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's monumental. I think that it's a step in the direction towards reaching herd immunity, and also uh, so reassuring that we can have this age group that had the highest COVID case rates in the fourth wave and ongoing finally protected. Um, Personally, I mean, um, mine is too young for this age group to be vaccinated yet, but she's already excited for when her turn comes. And I have a lot of parents and caregivers in clinic that have expressed great excitement that this is the best news they've heard all year, some of them have said. Um, Of course, there are those that are a bit hesitant, but many many parents and caregivers are so relieved because as Dr. Mathani said these are the children that are going to school they're sitting in in spaces with shared air for hours and hours five days a week um, and that's how COVID spreads and so they're at the highest risk and and this is a chance to get them protected and to get them back to a sense of normalcy to open up um, their extracurricular activities their social activities uh, hopefully to decrease school interruptions all of those things that are so important to their development.
1: Uh, you made the interview, uh, Dr. Lada, very easy on me because you asked people for great questions ahead of time and they delivered. Your Twitter followers did and there's a lot of great fair questions that i think a lot of people would share so i wanted to get to some and i'd like to invite both of you to feel free to jump in interact with one another add to what each other has to say how about this one from TLC smiles have you ever heard a more positive twitter handle than TLC smiles says my husband's very hesitant to to vaccinate our kids our boys he wonders how do we know this isn't going to adversely affect them down the road what if the mrna in the vaccine changes how dna is made in their sperm in the future And they don't really know these answers yet until the next generation. And even though I say to him that scientists say that's not possible, there's no evidence of that happening, he doesn't trust the science. How do I explain this to him when it's not my field of expertise? Dr. Latta, you want to go first?
4: Yeah, sure. You know, I want to echo the sentiment of of really understanding where parents and caregivers anxiety is coming from when we make decisions for ourselves it's different but when we make them for our children, we want to make sure we have all the information we don't want to put them at risk, we really want to make sure we're making the best decision possible. So this particular question asks about uh, changing the DNA and it's well established that the mRNA vaccines don't go into the nucleus of the cell and the nucleus is where the DNA is. So they can't, they can't change the DNA. They simply can't. So that's important to know. Um, The other thing is, is that, COVID infection itself has unknown long-term consequences that are likely higher risk um, and and much scarier than the vaccine itself. And so if we were to to weigh that, you know, should my child get COVID infection or the COVID vaccine, um, there's a lot more known about the COVID vaccine. It's safety tested, whereas COVID infection can lead to long COVID, serious illness, hospitalization, uh, many other things. And I think, you know, the last point is that, I've taken an environmental health course as part of my public health masters, and we learned that every chemical and compound uh, that's created in the U.S., for example, is not tested to see if it causes things like cancer. So there's a chance that in your food, the preservatives in your food, um, things in your cosmetics, all of those things have an equal risk of causing long-term effects as things like vaccine, or I would say a higher risk because they're not rigorously safety tested as vaccines are. Um, so we're applying a really stringent lens here to, to the vaccines, families, the public. Um, they're looking at this COVID vaccine and saying, well, is, are we hundred percent sure? But the fact is we're not hundred percent sure about anything we consume um, medication, food, or otherwise.
1: Yeah, I mean, people always say, what do you know about the hot dogs you eat? Although I'm not sure we want to be stacking those two up against one another. Uh, Shazma, how do you balance? I I mean, a lot of people have said, you know, the Americans kind of beat us to the punch on this. The Americans were first. FDA approval came first. I've seen some other Canadians say that's kind of actually a testament to Health Canada, which typically has more stringent standards than the FDA. Parents are going to wonder if we get our kids five to 11, if they get this vaccine, does this Health Canada approve? approval essentially mean that we're good to go post-vaccination that kids can back get back to regular activities that kids can be gathering and having birthday parties inside have normalcy with regards to their team sports or maybe the music the group music lessons that they have i mean can i get personal for a second once your little one's vaccinated how's your family going to come up with the rules on on how everything works on the social circle
3: yeah, so a couple of things to address there. I mean, first, the Health Canada piece, I, I always take solace in the fact that Health Canada has always been more rigorous than the FDA. We we we've seen that not just with vaccines, but with all other drugs that have been approved. And so I think that that's an important point for viewers to, to hear and to understand that um, Health Canada is more rigorous and the fact that it's now FDA approved and Health Canada approved actually means quite a bit in terms of safety um, and efficacy of this vaccine. Um, second, in terms of uh, just to kind of go off what Dr. Lara was saying, Uh, In terms of safety, I mean, we have to remember that this vaccine in adults has been uh, used on billions. So billions of people around the world have received the Pfizer vaccine. And uh, there are no kind of major safety signals that we've seen after literally billions of people have been vaccinated. When we see that the FDA has approved this for 5 to 11 before uh, Health Canada has, there's already over 2 million people in the 5 to 11 age group who have been vaccinated in the US and again, no major safety signals. So these are all things that should be reassuring parents and they certainly reassure myself as well of the safety of this vaccine. In terms of the socialization piece, um, I mean, that's the goal, right? Uh, as Dr. Lada had mentioned earlier as well, I mean, the goal is that once we get this uh, vulnerable group of, of, the, of the age that seems to be driving the infections, especially in that fourth wave, once we get them vaccinated, the idea is that we reach herd immunity more quickly, that we kind of uh, take away this, um, this high-risk group for transmission uh, in the grand scheme of things and be able to move back to normal more quickly, to get back into extracurricular activities, to feel more safe about going to school, going to birthday parties, going uh, going to have uh, playdates at your friend's house. Um, and I will say that for our family personally, yes, as soon as my daughter gets uh, double vaccinated, we will feel more comfortable opening up our bubble a bit more, um, maybe having those indoor play dates with our vaccinated friends. Uh, some of her friends, of course, that will be in the same age that are vaccinated as well. And so it certainly gives a lot of hope to, to move towards normalcy.
1: Dr. Latt, is there anything different about this vaccine than, than the one that 12 plus, you know, all the rest of us have been receiving or is it just received special approval?
4: It's uh, it's the same vaccine. It's just a smaller dose, so it's a third of the dose of the adult vaccine. But but it's the same, and that's why again it's reassuring that billions of around the world have received this vaccine uh, without any serious adverse effects. And and I wanted to just uh, tag on to to Dr. Mathani's um answer about uh, socializing the kids and I completely agree and I think it's such a ray of hope Um, and I do think that looking at the case rates will be important and certainly uh, if case rates are high, large indoor gatherings, I would still continue the low risk interventions like masking. So sending children to school, uh, masking is still important. Not everyone will be immunized. Case rates might be high uh, and masking protects against the transmission of so many different viruses in the the winter and, and COVID in particular, which is so highly infectious. Um, So I think as we move towards normalcy, there's still those uh, minimum things that we can do, uh, good ventilation, masking, um, hand cleaning and sanitization that will be really important in preventing future waves of the pandemic, which is really what we want to do.
1: Are there any risks that the 5 to 11 or for that matter the under fives uh might run uh, when it comes to the vaccine i've I've seen some people suggest and i've read conflicting reports on this i want to go straight to scientists here uh that that there's an elevated risk of myocarditis and potentially other symptoms or side effects dr lada let's start with you true untrue unknown
4: So there there has been an increased risk of myocarditis from the Pfizer vaccine and from other vaccines as well um, in the 12 and above age group, but it's been mostly in the 16 to 17 um, age and mostly in males. And it's really important to note that this increased risk of myocarditis is actually much lower with the vaccine than with COVID infection itself. So there's been uh, estimates that um, actually, getting the COVID infection has a 6 to 30 times higher rate of causing myocarditis than the vaccine. Um, we believe that because of the lower dose in the 5 to 11 age group, um, as well as the fact that we saw this in older teens rather than the 12 to 14 age group, um, that the younger children will be less at less risk of myocarditis, so uh, the hope and and the thought is that the five to eleven, and then the even younger age group, will be at lower risk of heart inflammation than uh, than the older group because this is something we saw in the teenagers.
1: So basically, it's the same premises before in that you can feel a bit lousy or sometimes a lot lousy after getting your vaccine, but it's not as lousy as getting COVID.
4: Absolutely. And even the cases of myocarditis that were caused by the vaccine were all fully recovered, mild cases, whereas myocarditis caused by COVID itself has caused uh, sometimes long lasting heart damage in those children.
1: Okay, Uh, Heidi says, you know, we're so excited to get our four year old vaccinated when she's eligible. My husband teaches elementary and he and all of his colleagues are so relieved that there will be more protection in schools, which is a great point. Gina says rural uptake will likely follow the same rate as adults. Low government really needs to update the push and the education that from Gina. Uh, Dr. Matheny, I, I don't want to ask you to get political. It's more of a policy question. But do you believe that we've got these these restriction exemptions programs and then adults are showing their QR codes to prove their vaccination status so they can enter restaurants, as an example, or sporting arenas, what have you once this vaccine is readily available for kids. Aged 5 to 11 do you believe i mean alberta's education minister has already said hey we're not going to limit access to schools based on vaccination status don't even start it's a non-starter with her do you believe that this government should implement a policy that would require young people 5 to 11 to be vaccinated to enter restaurants sporting arenas and the like
3: um, I think that we can look at this in two ways. So I, I have to agree with with the school piece. I mean, I of course I'm a proponent of vaccines, but there's always um, this this piece in terms of uh, equitable access and um, and then just harming kids as a result of parents' decisions. So I think that school makes that a bit tricky um, because then it ends up potentially being uh, parents who are anti-vax who are then affecting uh, their children and their and their right to education. However, that being said, in terms of things like um, social and public spaces, uh, sporting events, um, even even um, kind of extracurricular activities, I would be in support of a research exemption program for the five to eleven age group um, from from kind of the more social
1: social aspect of things. How about you, Doctor Latta? Yeah, I would
4: absolutely agree. I, I think um, what would the reason be not to, to include them in the restrictions exemption program? I mean, there's been all these myths that children don't transmit COVID well, but we've proved that wrong time and time again with each wave. Uh, transmission in schools has increased community transmission. Um, so if we're requiring the vaccine for entry into different places, we should certainly apply that to children if they're eligible for the vaccine. Um, the other thing is with schools, uh, you know, I agree with Dr. Mithani about the inequitable access. Uh, I also think that there is a way to um, support. Uh, vaccination for school admission that doesn't necessarily um, exclude people who aren't vaccinated and so making it mandatory but then uh, if parents choose not to vaccinate their children they get support they get resources they get education while their children are still allowed to go to school has been shown in other states to be an effective way of encouraging and improving childhood vaccination rates um, if if it is applied in schools so, just
1: so i totally understand can can you lay out a little bit what that would look like for the child or for the family.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So, so basically, it's it's um, it looks like you know a requirement for childhood vaccines to attend school. However, if a family decides not to vaccinate their children, uh, they're not denied school entry. So, rather, what happens is uh, there's awareness, um, education, meetings with the family, educational um, efforts done with the family to encourage them and to support them in making that decision. Um, and so, it just basically looks like, in addition to a vaccine rollout, also rolling out those awareness pieces, those educational campaigns, um, so that we're really supporting families and making the decision based on science rather than, uh, again, those uh, social media sites or, or random sources on
1: the internet. Sure. Uh, we've got Can I just jump in there, please Ryan? Please do, yeah. Sorry,
3: thank you. I, I just want to echo that. I mean, I think the information and education piece is going to be just pivotal with this 5 to 11 age group. Um, there is some hesitation with parents. We know that and, and there's all these Google searches that are happening. all this misinformation unfortunately that is out there and is rampant. And I think that um, policymakers and, and leaders really have to focus on getting information and, and accurate information in the hands of parents as quickly as possible. So that may be things like including school boards and getting information out, having you know, a one page or handout just go in the backpack of every child. Um, who's coming home so that their parents can read over it and really be truly educated on the science and the effectiveness and the safety of this vaccine. I think that that's really going to be a big, big piece in terms of the rollout in the 5 to 11 age group. And I hope that policy makers and leaders are already thinking about those things in terms of how the rollout is going to happen.
1: Uh, Carrie is uh, on our live chat right now. She's watching us live on YouTube, says no school age children in Alberta have died from covid Why would we inject something that we don't know the long-term effects of? COVID is also transmitted among the vaccinated.
3: I I can start with that one. I can start with that one. So so a few things. I mean, so thankfully, thankfully, there have been no children in the 5 to 11 age group who have died from COVID in Alberta. But there have been many people in that age group who have had severe outcomes and hospital admissions and even ICU admissions in that age group. We saw a big spike of that in the fourth wave. Um, Furthermore, when we look down to our neighbors in the U.S., which, of course, have a larger population, there have been children, over 100 children who have died from COVID-19 in in that population. So that's one thing to keep in mind. So, yes, we've been lucky in terms of not having any deaths in Alberta, but there have been severe outcomes and there have been deaths in other parts of Canada and in the U.S. as well. Um, We, in terms of the long-term effects, I mean, we again, like Dr. Lada was saying, we we know that billions of people have been inoculated with this vaccine in particular, and it has shown both safety and effectiveness. Um, And we also know that COVID, just getting COVID, even a mild infection um, at the start can lead to very long and debilitating effects of long COVID. So things like breathing problems, chronic fatigue, brain fog, um, the inability to function. We see that in kids up to 15 to 20% of kids who had mild illness can suffer from long COVID. And so, again, risk versus benefit, the benefit of getting the vaccine and protecting yourself from COVID certainly well, well outweighs um, the the risks of getting COVID. Um, And then in terms of the... uh, the last piece. What was the last part that you said? There was one more thing. that I you there. said that
1: it can still spread. You know, people. The vaccinated can right, still get yes, COVID. Right. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah.
3: So yes, the vaccine can still get COVID, but it decreases the risk dramatically. So I mean, we know that the Pfizer vaccine in kids protects um from getting COVID. Of like, not it has a ninety percent effective uh, effectiveness rate. And so yes, you can still get COVID, but your severe outcomes will be less. Uh, we know that transmission in adults is less from getting vaccinated. We also know that it protects you from getting COVID, a, a high protection rate. And then, of course, protects from getting the severe outcomes and the long term effects from contracting COVID. So nothing is 100 percent. There's no vaccine that we have out there. That's 100 percent. There's no medication that we have out there. That's 100 um, percent. But it does dramatically decrease the risk of both getting COVID and having the severe outcomes from it.
1: Dr. Ladith, did you want to add anything to that?
4: Yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. I think the question to me would be why are we using death of of a child as our primary reason to vaccinate or not? There are so many other bad things that happen to a child with COVID other than death. Um, We don't want to wait for that to happen before we have parents and caregivers decide to vaccinate their children. Um, And the other thing is, you know, all of the other childhood vaccines. They don't generally lead to death. Those illnesses, so measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox. I mean, they may lead to severe illness in a minority of children. They may may lead to death in a very minority of children. Um, but again, we vaccinate because because having children hospitalized for a vaccine preventable illness is not acceptable. If there is a vaccine available, why are we prepared to accept that children will be hospitalized, children will be put in the ICU, and children will be will suffer? For long-term side effects. Um, it, it, it just uh, it just makes sense to protect them if protection is available.
1: Interesting comment from Kimberly tuning in live says long haul COVID feels reminiscent of seeing people with permanent disabilities following polio infections. Um, Kimberly, that, that reminds me of my uncle Keith, my dad's older brother, big, strapping, strong guy. He had polio, survived it as a kid. And, and, and the one thing, you know, it seared its way into my memory as a child watching him try to pour a glass of water from a pitcher. And he could barely hold his arm out to hold this pitcher. This is a big, strong, 200 pound guy. I mean, that effects of polio last, of course, for decades. Karen says, you know, there's an MLA out of Lethbridge. Nathan Newdorf had an editorial in the Lethbridge Herald last week talking about having the rights and freedoms to decide what we put in our bodies. There's no encouraging vaccines from this government, which is an interesting point we've got a lot of people. It's interesting seeing comments that I'm getting either personally to my email inbox or a couple in the live chat right now on fertility. There's a real concern, it seems, from parents on the fertility angle of this. Uh, Dr. Ladd, I know we've addressed this already to a certain degree with regards to the effect of MRNA vaccines uh, in, 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 some, in a child's sperm they were talking about into adulthood, obviously. But, but are there other fertility conversations we need to be having? Is this something that's on the researcher's radar? It
4: is. And, you know, we see this hesitation with pregnant women as well and women who want to have uh, kids. I see it in clinic with families, um, moms that want to have further children. They're scared of getting the vaccine because, again, they've heard this misinformation on the Internet that the COVID vaccine can cause infertility. So researchers have actually looked into this in the adult population uh, and have found that there's no basis to these claims. Um, The COVID vaccine has not uh, interfered with adult fertility. Um, It does not interfere with people getting pregnant. It does not cause miscarriage because that was also uh, a concern amongst women. Um, So it it does not cause those things in adults and there's no reason that it should in children. Um, But again, I think there's that misinformation out there and there's a lot of anxiety Uh, around that. Um, Although there's no basis to these claims, again, billions of doses given around the world, um, and and nothing has been shown to come of that in terms of fertility consequences. Um, So I think it's just a matter of reiterating that the science does not show that, and there's no reason that it should affect the fertility of children, um, just as other vaccines have not affected the fertility of children.
1: Hmm. An interesting question from Kaylin here who wonders about an 11-year-old soon to turn 12. Wondering, is it better to get the vaccine for kids, that 33% dose, or is it better to just wait a bit until the 12th birthday and get the full one? Dr. Mathani, what would you do if that was your daughter?
3: I would get her the first dose as quickly as I could. Hmm. So um, if we're at the cusp of kind of 11 turning to 12, get the 10 microgram dose um, initially, and then once uh, once she turns 12, um, then get the the 30 microgram dose thereafter. But I think just getting that first dose in as quickly as possible and offering um, some uh, some protection is the most important thing right now, especially in this age group that we know has previously driven infections that is largely unvaccinated and, and really needs protection.
1: Doctors, I know that both of you have uh, duties that are extremely important. Among those duties, though, public information. So I'm so grateful the two of you joined us this morning. In closing, anything quickly that we have not touched on that you think is imperative for parents to know?
3: I would just add in, I mean, please, please go and talk to your trusted healthcare provider. So whether that's your family doctor or your pediatrician, if you have questions, they, we and they are armed with answers. Um, I mean, Dr. Lada had this excellent thread that, um, that she put out uh, a couple days ago, but really please just talk to your trusted healthcare provider and get science-based answers. Don't just talk to your friends and your families and do Google searches or YouTube searches. Just talk to someone who knows what their, um, what the science is. If you have any hesitation
4: and questions,
1: Dr. Latta last word to you.
4: You know, just that realize that immunizing this age group is is not just going to protect them, it's going to protect the community and it's going to get us one step closer towards the end of this pandemic. Um, So it really is something that is going to have a number of benefits across the board. um, And, and, you know, understand the anxiety and the hesitation, but again, reach out to the evidence-based sources um, and and find out and, and use that in supporting your decision making.
1: You've got it. That's Dr. Shazma Mathani, ER doc, including the Stollery Children's Hospital, pediatrician, Dr. Tacey and Lada. Thanks for making time for us this morning, doctors. We appreciate it. Thanks,
4: Ryan. Thanks for having us.
1: Real talkers, thank you for your comments as well. How about this one from Fatima? I love this. I feel the same way. She says, it truly feels surreal to hear doctors you trust finally say we might be able to begin to get back to normal. It feels so close. She says, I hope the uptake is high in this age range fatima i don't blame you for typing out maybe one of the most careful sentences you ever have i don't know Uh, to hear doctors you trust finally say we might be able to begin to get back i'm with you because we've been burned before haven't we i was laughing we laugh so we don't cry we say but i was laughing with a buddy the other day he reminded me that when this thing first broke you know, late February into really the beginning of March of 2020. And we were forecasting how long this might be. And he's correct. He said, I told you. He said, I said two years. And he says, and what did you tell me? And I went, three weeks. And he said, what did you tell me? And I said, three weeks. I had no idea. Obviously, most of us probably didn't. And I think he hates to be right. I think he hates that it's starting to look more like two years. Tracy on our live chat says every single vaccine in history, not a cure. It affects us all differently. A hundred years ago, they wore masks. They stayed home and then they waited 20 years for a vaccine that they then lined up for. Why is this one so different? Jill, meantime, says I spent so much money on masks. My kid will be masked until college. Mama's going to get her money's worth. I get it. I know some of you, and maybe I'll include myself in this, masks are probably going to be a bit more of the regular routine. Maybe you're more comfortable wearing a mask in a movie theater now or in a crowded uh, you know, city bus or maybe a train. What about in an elevator? Does it feel weird to be back in an elevator with 10 other people? I don't know if that's ever going to feel normal again. Do you two think that you'll ever, like, do you, do you think that there's been, a, in the specific context of masks, or actually maybe even with hand sanitizer or other things that have changed a little bit, become more of our regular routine? Do you think any of that, oils is going to stick with you?
5: Yes. Uh, I can't believe I didn't carry hand sanitizer with me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Previous to the pandemic, like I'm kind of shocked at and disgusted at myself. Like, that's really gross, Hoyle. <laughs> you I don't... don't have to be so hard on yourself. No, but like even filling up uh, my like, put, like putting gas in the car. Yeah. Like just thinking of how many people must have touched that thing.
1: And then you go like you get fries in the drive-thru after you get gas and you're just licking the salt Uh, off your fingers. Me, That is me. That you were like
5: in my car. Thank you, Ryan. Well,
1: we are all you. You are all us. Yeah,
5: mask 100%. I will be wearing it for a very, very long time.
1: Yeah. Sam, you think you're the same way? I'm getting annoyed that I keep losing some of my favorite masks, but uh yeah,
5: I, I I echo Sarah. It's like I have a bottle of hand sanitizer like in every coat
1: pocket now. It's like I'm never far away from sanitizer. There's like there's literally one sitting on my desk right here. Yeah. Um Well, that's so, because you're in Canada's safest studio. We, we really are. Yeah, yeah exactly. But it, it, I same to the point like I don't know if masks are going to last
5: forever. Um I definitely am going to keep them for the next time I have a cold, Yeah. right? Like, I think that that's, you know, maybe not necessarily in the terms of COVID, but just flu season, if you have anything that you feel like is a communicable illness,
1: like, I, I really really hope here in north america we kind of lean a little bit more to, towards what asian countries do and just normalize you know you, you feel a little bit sick you put a mask on yeah absolutely it's like a cultural thing yeah no there were i have had some interesting conversations this was pre-pandemic this was uh, several years ago where we do myth-busting segments with healthcare professionals on the radio and there there is the assertion that if you continue to use hand sanitizer or if in in the vernacular of the question that members of the public would ask these scientists if you overuse hand sanitizer do you decrease your body's ability to fight off disease right in other words does your body need a little bit you know it's that premise that it's anecdotal but why do farm kids never get sick uh, of course that's not true farm kids do get sick but the premise being that farm kids are exposed to a whole bunch of things and typically you know they're a little bit healthier and uh you know this just ask farm families and so that's something interesting to keep an eye on and something that we can continue to talk about lisa says another thing she'd love to see is normalizing staying home when you're sick for everybody's benefit right ak ray says masks for sickness at home it helped us all avoid my husband's cold because we all wore one gina meantime talking about social gatherings she says what about like large bowls of chips at social gatherings i have this uh old school theater style super cool popcorn maker uh and uh it's like one of the classic ones super cool it starts spilling out you know what i'm talking about like at the movie theaters and i'd have guys over to throw darts <laughs> this is like this is like your introspection into your past this is mine with mine mm-hmm. pop like a big bowl of buttery popcorn and then as we're all throwing darts every guy's like reaching into the popcorn thing and eating the popcorn and then you kind of like wipe your hands on your jeans or wherever you wipe them or whatever you know to to get the the salty butter popcorn off your fingers before you throw the same darts that everyone's using Uh, i mean
5: but at the same time totally normal totally normal pre-pandemic totally
1: normal Nothing unusual about nothing. it. Nobody that would have been visiting would have thought twice about that. Not at all. Now it's like, can you imagine? I don't know. I think we'll go
5: back to that, though. Maybe not you and me, but I feel like over time, we'll
1: forget. I'll be curious to see. I'm going to be really curious to see how what society looks like two or five or ten years from now. Like, Consider that some young kids, like our little guy, he's six. His only real memories are of pandemic times. Right? Like you're going back to four years old, early four years old at the time. I mean, that's you know, tough for kids to remember. Our friends at Eden Landscaping want to remind you, whatever your vision, they will execute it with precise attention to detail. And just because it's winter time although my little guy keeps reminding me not quite yet dad he knows he knows about the winter solstice he knows all about the 21st of december he says it's still fall dad i go yeah kiddo but it feels like winter doesn't it the team at eden landscaping still able to get construction projects done so for you maybe that's an outdoor cook space you want to be able to test out that outdoor pizza oven or the barbecue in the middle of january they've been Realizing people's visions, bringing outdoor spaces to life for more than 20 years, you can check out their portfolio. Examples of what they do, Eden Landscaping that is, online at landscapeedmonton.ca Congratulations to our friends at Breathe Outdoors. Now, you may be seeing big signage on big stores that used to be Campers Village. Well, it's the same crew with a fresh look. They realize that not everybody loves camping. Maybe you're a a dog walker. Maybe you love paddling or climbing or snowshoeing or maybe car camping's your thing. Whatever it is, maybe you're a weekend warrior on the hiking front. They've got the best gear available at prices that won't be beat. Whether it's Patagonia, the North Face, SmartWool, Yeti, Mountain Hardware, you can browse their selection online, the brand you've trusted since the 1960s, with a refreshed look at breatheoutdoors.ca. And don't forget if you do visit them in store and spend a minimum of $30, drop my name or tell them that Real Talk sent you and they've got a Breathe Outdoors ceramic mug with your name on it, absolutely free. Well, I'm looking forward to the next hour or so on this show because we're going to follow up, or we're going to expand our conversations on on two theories or two initiatives, two movements that have surfaced in conversation on the show. In several minutes from now, we'll call it 20, we're going to tackle imposter syndrome. You remember Panita McBrien, the executive director of the Downtown Business Association for our home city in Edmonton? She was on that top 40 under 40 roundtable. And and we asked her something that she's been reading lately or something that's inspiring her, something that's driving her forward. She referenced an article in the Harvard Business Review about imposter syndrome. So we're going to take that on. We've also been talking about a just transition. It's in the context of energy, the economy and business may be prompted in part by new Calgary Mayor Jody Gondek on this show exclusively telling Albertans and in particular Calgarians that her first order of business would be to declare a climate emergency in Canada's oil and gas capital. What does a just transition look like and how does it happen? I'm excited for these next two guests to bring us up to speed. Noel Kyo is the author of a new book, Sustainability Matters, Prospects for a Just Transition in Calgary, Canada's Petro City. He's the co-founder of Sustainable Calgary Society an associate professor of sustainable design at the UFC and has published a ton on sustainability and low carbon cities. Jeremy Barreto is an environmental lawyer and a partner with Castles based out of Calgary. He's an expert in the approval of renewable energy and clean technology projects across the country. He was appointed to the City of Calgary's Economic Resilience Task Force following the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Noel, Jeremy, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Noel, am I pronouncing your last name okay? I want you to correct me if I'm not. <laughs> perfect, Ryan. It's Noel Keo. Okay, perfect. Sustainability matters. Why?
6: Um, Sustainability matters because the whole idea of sustainability, which kind of in the last 20 years has become a centerpiece of uh, certainly municipal policy and provincial, national, international policy, and the whole idea behind sustainability is that we have to think holistically. When we make policy decisions, when we set budgets, when we make plans, we have to think what are the social dimensions of this idea, what is the economic dimension, what is the ecological dimension, and how do we ensure that kind of win-win-win or triple bottom line aspect to everything that we do. And sustainability is kind of the, the flag bearer for that concept.
1: Jeremy, this is something I, I know that, I mean, I, I originally found you, so to speak, on, on social media, and I've really enjoyed the perspective that you put out via your Twitter account at Jeremy Barreto. I mean, th- this is kind of, in a sense, the theme of, of your professional endeavors, and you're doing it right from the heart. I mean, you're doing it from Canada's Petro City, from the oil and gas capital. What's the conversation look like to this point from downtown Calgary on this front?
7: So Ryan, thanks. And I think uh, building off of what uh, Dr. Keo said, the sustainability, the energy transition, climate action, all these things happening now, I actually think they're a massive opportunity for Calgary and Alberta's future to look much brighter than even the golden days of our past. And I really think that Albertans, we have the tools in our toolbox to own this future, this sustainable future, this clean tech future, this decarbonized future, but we need to act now to seize it and to seize leadership of this area.
1: Okay, so but Jeremy, you've worked in oil and gas as as both a lawyer and an engineer, correct? that's right okay so i i love it because you can speak the language you've been there quite frankly you've made your living in that sector so so you're not some birkenstock wearing tree hugging granola munching hippie that's coming in here trying to bury the oil and gas industry because you know a lot of people are going to say we've got a ton of natural resources there's still a ton of global demand moving on makes absolutely no sense what do you say to those folks
7: I say to them that the energy transition is not about the end of one industry it's about the birth and growth spurt of numerous industries and the question for alberta right now is whether we want to be a leader in these new industries and emerging industries like hydrogen geothermal energy carbon capture like we were leaders in oil and gas for many decades and even if oil and gas will be here for i think decades to come in some form I think we also have to seize the leadership of these other industries so that uh, we can have continued prosperity. I think of my daughter. I think you got a six year old, Ryan. I got a six year old daughter as well. She definitely doesn't have to worry about being too clean. We've got to clean her hands all the time, going back to your last segment. But uh, the thing is, when she's 21, when your son is 21, I want your son and my daughter to have all the opportunities that uh, geologists and petroleum engineers had in the 70s and mid to late 80s. And they can do that if we invest now and build up these industries of the future. So they're not leaving Alberta. They're welcoming many other young people uh, to come here and build their futures here.
1: Uh, Dr. Q, I'm, I'm hoping that I can convey my question. I'm hoping I can find the words. Uh, do you think that the phrase just transition actually hampers the effort itself? Do you think the word just in a sense, turns people off who believe it gives them the sense that this isn't about business or economics and is more about the social angle, about the equitable angle. A lot of people are going to say equity and economics. There's not a lot of intersections there.
6: Well, I I guess what I would say, that last comment you made, equity and economics, not a lot of intersection. I think that's part of the problem, actually, is why isn't there an intersection? Why is it uh, does it really make any sense that there is no intersection between economics and and uh, and justice? Because that's, I mean, essentially that's what an economy is supposed to be for. It's not supposed to be for amassing wealth. It's not supposed to be having the, you know, five percent GDP growth every year just for the sake of growth. It's supposed to serve a higher order, which is our social well-being. So I think it's 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 perfectly apt to talk about just transition. I know it probably grates some people, but I think that's where where we're at in changing the conversation is to realize that the economy serves our society. And if it doesn't, it must be changed. And at the same time, from a sustainability perspective, my belief is that society has to find the harmony within the ecological systems, the planet, the ecosystems that that are our basic life support systems, we have to harmonize with that as well, or or the game is lost. So that's kind of my take on sustainability: is we have to accept or understand this finite planet that we live on. Uh, we have to pursue well-being through our social organizations and through our culture, and our economy has to serve those ends.
1: Jeremy. I- When we talked to Mayor Gondek the morning after that municipal election, and when I asked her about what her first order of business would be, the first item across her desk, and she said to declare a climate emergency, I felt this surge of energy, which comes with the knowledge that you're about to see tens of thousands of downloads of your show, because I knew <laughs> that it was going to send ripples across the province, maybe all the way to Ottawa. And it prompted some public commentary from from conservatives like Ken Boson Cool, former chief of staff, to B.C. Premier Christy Clark, and from W. Brett Wilson. And I'm not putting the two on the same level. I find Ken to be rather reasonable. But both of them said, wow. Right. How did it land when you first heard it? Did you see it as a sign of leadership? Did you see it as a message that could have been massaged a little bit more? What sort of an impact did you see?
7: Uh, When Mayor Gondek uh, brought forth her climate emergency declaration proposal, which I believe passed 13 to two with a huge majority of people across the city of Calgary and Edmonton has done this for a few years so you're winning the battle of Alberta in this regard I heard jobs and the reason I heard jobs is because uh, I was speaking to an electrician who had um, 16 people working for him in the boom times in oil and gas they were um, working on the expansion of oil and gas facilities or working on towns that hotels and restaurants that were booming he's down to himself He's got no more work, he's hanging on, he can barely pay his mortgage and uh, hang on to a few properties he built, built in the good times. What the climate emergency declaration will do, it'll inspire action by the city. And that's what I'm more interested in. And one thing I've been involved in the last year is the city of Calgary brought in what's called the Clean Energy Improvement Program, which is allowing residents to finance things like better energy efficiency or put solar panels on the roof and then spread out the cost over many years, like you do with uh, paving your alley, or upgrading your sidewalks. And I think that will just create jobs. More people doing these upgrades will help people like that electrician hire more people back and get back to work while we at the same time decarbonize. So I'm actually looking forward to the next step of Mayor Gondak's plan, which I hope is very specific actions, both for residences, but also for businesses to participate in this energy transition and to act on, on climate.
1: Noel, you know what's really interesting uh, about what Jeremy's just said? Jeremy's first thought is jobs when he hears about a declaration of a climate emergency. I don't have the clip in front of me. I didn't know how Jeremy would answer the question, but I'm sure that both of you heard Premier Kenny's response to Mayor Gondek's statement. And what was it? Kenny said, It's interesting to hear that's the top priority of the mayor of Calgary. I would think her top priority would be finding jobs for Calgarians. What an interesting yeah. dichotomy. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I agree
6: with Jeremy that the the future for our economy, the future for our city, for Calgarians, and for job creation has got to be towards renewable energy and an alternative economic futures and the, the tech sector and, and all of those things that we st- talk about. But still, in so many ways, we're still kind of stuck in this oil and gas um, mindset in our city. And what what struck me when I, well, when I heard the The announcement of the uh the climate emergency that was fantastic i mean as you can imagine that was music to my ears um where i think we are now with that is much of one of the big themes that uh that uh, i talk about in my book is that over the past 20 years one of the reasons I, i wrote the book is in the past 20 years we've had a lot of policy some pretty good policy i think we can still go further with on the policy side of things but that's kind of where it stopped we have not aligned budgets With that policy and therefore we have not put in place plans and executed those plans to achieve the ends that the policy is supposed to achieve and we find ourselves today as it happens this week council is uh, again looking at the budget for the coming year and my take on it so far is that i think unless there is significant change in the debates over the next week on policy we're still stuck in that same place i'm sorry on budgets we have a policy initiative related to climate emergency and that climate emergency emergency would suppose that we're going to significantly change the way we do business not seeing that in the preliminaries on the budget I certainly do hope and I have I have hope in this new council young council diverse council a very educated energetic council that understands these issues. So I do hope that we see that this week, but it's where we've been stuck for the past 20 years and we have to move beyond that point. So we have to put our money where our mouth is in a, in a sense. Good policy,
1: follow it up with budget or nothing happens. Jeremy what does that look like tangibly like in other words people that are listening to this and, and and don't take for granted that people might be listening to this from Victoria or from Hamilton or from St. John's as well. I mean what does good policy look like for people that would love to see economic stimulus. They'd love to see a job boon happen in their city. What are a couple of things specifically that they should ask for or expect from their elected officials the policymakers?
7: Sure. So I'll give you two, Ryan. So the first one, I would say that Edmonton is winning the Battle of Alberta in terms of municipal climate policy. Calgary's very quietly done some things like powering the LRT and there's municipal operations renewable energy. But Edmonton right now, under former Mayor Iverson and hopefully continue under the current mayor, has programs for things like uh, solar panel incentives. The city purchasing renewable energy and a suite of other measures which Calgary will hopefully catch up with under its climate plan, which I agree with Dr. Keogh, requires a budget and requires specific action soon. Uh, Looking ahead to the future, uh, I really think that all orders of government need to come together. We talked about debates between uh, the province and the cities on different things about climate, but I think we may agree on more than we disagree on. I I look at things like the recent childcare announcement. I look at uh, abandoned wells, where the federal and provincial governments came together to help fund those. And I think I look to the future, I would love to see a huge investment in education. Because when I talk about uh, the just transition, energy transition, I really think of the next generation. And I would like to see the federal, provincial and municipal governments come together, look at a big clean tech or environmental investment uh, in our education system, Calgary and Edmonton, make them world class, make them the Harvard of education, so that in the future, all the best and brightest minds are coming here
1: but i like i don't want to be this guy but sometimes when you host a show called Real Talk, you have to be realistic, and, and you have and you have to comment on what you see around you. And I don't see investment in turning Alberta into the Harvard of Canada. What I what I do see are job cuts and funding cuts at post secondary institutions, and I see regressions in curriculum, and and I see doubling down on industries that absolutely have served us well and that we can be proud of through the decades, but have a finite end. So, Noel, how are people supposed to wrap their minds around this? This isn't exactly, I mean, aside from perhaps entrepreneurs with deep, deep pockets and and, and big boards and, and, and the wealth to invest in these types of things, it's not the type of thing that a person can do on their own. So how is someone to process what they're hearing from experts like the two of you and what they're seeing from their government?
6: Yeah, so I, I agree with, with those comments, Ryan. I think we are still very much in that the beginnings of this trans, transition or transformation period. As I said before, I think we are still we haven't wrapped our, our, our heads around uh, the the demise of the oil and gas industry or the the diminishment of the oil and gas industry. I, I agree with Jeremy that there's opportunities in the future. There's opportunities for taking the carbon in that very valuable resource and doing other things than burning it. For example, I think CCS maybe in the future is a solution blue hydrogen where we're using gas uh, natural gas to produce hydrogen, maybe in the future, but those things are not with us now what's with us now is wind energy. uh, Solar energy, I do agree with Jeremy also that the tech sector is going to be very important here, but the tech sector, I think. Needs a direction, and and that's where sustainability comes in. So the work that we've done uh, did with Sustainable Calgary, for example. Where where should we invest? Uh, we should invest in affordable housing. How does our development sector solve the problem of affordable housing? Green buildings. We should be building every building in our city to the highest to the maximum standard of green, and and then exporting that technology all over the place. Circular economy. We should get serious about a zero waste. Economy, and then one of the big ones for me, transportation. In a city, it's the biggest part of our budget. It's one of the biggest consumers of fossil fuels. It's one of the biggest contributors to sprawl, which equals a very expensive to maintain city. We have to get our heads around how we begin to build Calgary, Edmonton, most cities in Canada that are not reliant upon the automobile. Doesn't mean that automobiles got to disappear, but in my opinion, they have to be tertiary. We have to focus on. Uh, Ease, ease of pedestrians using our city and a pleasure in doing it. We have to focus on active transportation infrastructure, bikes, for instance. We have to focus on transit. We, we, we have to get beyond the place where, especially for people on low incomes, we talk about the just transition. We are not obliging a single parent making minimum wage to purchase an automobile to get to their job. Because if that automobile breaks down, they're probably going to be out of a home, let, let alone an automobile and a job. So transportation to me, from a city point of view, um, and is where most Canadians live, is a core element here. And a core piece of that is how do we reduce our dependence on the very expensive, most expensive, most carbon-producing
1: technology, and that is the private automobile. You, you talk about this, and this is the most uh, it's monday and i'm going to say this is the most obvious thing i'm going to say all week and that is that it's a classic chicken and the egg argument where you don't have the public transit or pedestrian infrastructure for people so a lot of folks use their cars and then people look around them and say this is lunacy this talk about bike lanes and pedestrian infrastructure and public transit because everyone uses their cars right yeah yeah, well, I, I, to go back to some of Jeremy's
6: points, I think, and if you look at where will we attract the talent from? Who will want to come to Calgary? And it's a kind of an, an active city where the opportunity to, to use your bicycle or the opportunity to walk or the availability of transit is there. These are the core infrastructures that are going to attract talent, to keep talent in Calgary. We're seeing more and more young people leaving the city for some of those kinds of reasons. That is going to be related to the foundation of education that Jeremy talked about, that is going to be the key to kickstarting this process, And it is kind of a chicken and egg. And that's where policy and budget comes in. What are the kinds of policies that we can put in place to see this transportation as an investment? It doesn't mean that everybody has to give up their car tomorrow, but it does mean that we take the biggest slice of the budget in the city and we begin to nudge that towards transit and active transportation and away from feeding the automobile culture because historically – the vast majority, the reason that we are dependent on our automobiles, and people say, as they, as you have noted, uh, Ryan, is because we have spent most, the vast majority of our infrastructure money on that particular technology. And it is the least sustainable from a social, from an economic, and from an ecological point of view. NASA, last year, noted that the automobile is probably the most destructive technology in terms of uh, climate change on the planet. So. It's a it's a big ask, it's a huge. That's what we talk about tra- transition or transformation. That it has to happen. It is not easy, but these we but we know the directions we have to take. The thing is, as I said, policy to support it, and then let's see those budgets that are going to start to put in place things like transit and active transportation, so people can make those choices. And as it is in mo- most of say. Um, the countries in Scandinavia, it becomes actually the easiest choice to make for transportation.
1: I want to take uh, two supercharged words and I want to wrap up the conversation with this, asking both of you to comment. Uh, We hear it from politicians frequently. Jeremy, is there still an inherent Alberta advantage? And if so, what does it look like either mid or post just transition?
7: Uh, I would say there is, but the, the advantages are people. It's not necessarily the resources in the ground. And I think what if we mm-hmm. built an industry from nothing, from a resource that you put in a bottle and it wouldn't come out like a jar of molasses, which is what the oil sands are, and made it into an international commodity worth billions of dollars, we can do it again. And I think it just takes supporting these uh, bright folks at our universities, at our companies, that are working towards a 2050 net zero scenario so that this wave, this billions of dollars of investment in clean tech and decarbonization, we can ride over and get on it and enjoy all those benefits. And at the same time, do what Dr. Keo suggested, which is um, b- make our cities more sustainable and more transit things like that. Or we can let it pass, our, pass us by. I think that's our choice right now. And that is at our advantage, if we can leverage our skills and talents now to get on the next wave uh, rather, than, rather than just thinking about the last one.
1: Noel, to you? Yeah,
6: I, I, I would agree a lot. I would say that the the Alberta advantage is definitely not the lowest taxes on the planet. That's not the Alberta advantage, and that's not gonna attract people. The advantage is, and I, I think one place to see the advantage is both councils of Edmonton and Calgary. Youth, diversity, new ideas, education, all of those things, that's where, uh, if we have an Alberta advantage, that is
1: the advantage. Dr. Noel Keogh is author of the new book, Sustainability Matters, Prospects for a Just Transition in Calgary, Canada's Petro City, published just back in September. Jeremy Barreto, an environmental lawyer, a partner at Castles, based out of Calgary, uh, pointed to the City of Calgary's Economic Resilience Task Force in early 2020. Thanks to both of you. We really appreciate this conversation. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. You nice bet. Be you can share your thoughts with us on what this looks like from your perspective. Let us know what industry you're involved in, what, what your career has looked like, what you hope your career might look like, what drives your personal perspective. Of course, this is more than just dollars and cents. But when we talk about business, that really is the bottom line, isn't it? So what needs to go into it? And I love that little bit about the intersection of equity and the economy. I like Dr. Keo's take on that. Be sure to share this interview with anybody who you think might love it. We appreciate any time you share our content. Hit like on YouTube if you've loved an interview. Maybe rate our podcast Give it a thought We appreciate every single one of you that does that You never know when your comment And your rating on our podcast Might be shared In our Real Talk Sunday message Every Sunday we send an email Looking back on some of the highlights Of the week that was And looking ahead to the week to come On the show You can subscribe to that free email By going to our website RyanJesperson.com Just scroll to the bottom of the page We have an update on a photojournalist That has been She's, as a matter of fact, sitting in jail right now. Amber Bracken, a personal friend of mine and an experienced photojournalist. We have an update from her partner. We've reached out to both of them, of course, that coming up in just a second. But first, I want to remind you that Athabasca University is Canada's online university. I saved this mention for right now in the show because it makes perfect sense to remind you that when we're talking about transitioning an economy, when we're talking about new job prospects, the best thing you can do is go online to athabaskau.ca and check out what options might be there for you. You can get details on their programs and courses. Find out more about how Athabasca University works, including credit for experience, including how you get started, including what your first year online might look like, whether it's one single course or whether it's total accreditation, you can find out all the details online at AthabascaU.ca. Our friends at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge want you to know the selection that they have right now of both the Dodge and Jeep line is the best it's been in the last year and a half. We know a lot of you have been having a whole lot of interest in those ram 1500s this is the back to back to back best-selling truck of the year in canada that ram 1500 plus of course the jeep brand trusted since 1941 The new Wagoneers are here at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. You can browse their selection today online via the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com, or you can go see them safely in person. And our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, for the month of November, reminding you, the feature burger this month the flamethrower burger this is that 100 percent all beef patty topped with fiery flamethrower sauce pepper jack cheese jalapeno bacon the fresh tomato the crisp lettuce and that toasted bun why not pair it up with a blizzard my recommendation this month the oreo mocha fudge blizzard with real oreo cookie pieces choco chunks and coffee Blended with their world-famous Serve to Blizzard Perfection, that soft-serve ice cream that Dairy Queen's known for. You can find them at the Dairy Queen's in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. So you may or may not have heard that the Witsuiten standoff, this occupation, so to speak, has ramped up. Over the past week, we've been covering it as best we can, keeping an eye on all the stories that are making news across the country. Well, things changed a little bit when heavily armed RCMP officers arrived last week and among the developments, a couple of journalists arrested, including Amber Bracken. Perhaps you follow her on Instagram at photo Bracken. She's been posting a lot from behind the scenes. You might call it the front line of that occupation. Well, Amber was arrested by RCMP several days ago. We've reached out to to both her and to her partner, Jason, who was in touch with us just moments ago. He appreciated us reaching out. He said, through all of this, the lawyers have said that Amber is fine and will hopefully be released today. Of course, we'll be in touch with Amber. We hope to have her here on the show, but that's good news for people that, of course, are maybe having their hearts in their throats a little bit, people that are wondering what this might be. Once journalists start getting arrested, things change. You got to wonder about what this is going to look like for the RCMP, and you got to wonder what this is going to do to the temperature of those demonstrations, that standoff. Of course, past interviews on this show, you've heard organizers of that community the suit and first nation saying we're not going anywhere and this pipeline project this is that big lng pipeline the six and a half billion dollar pipeline they've said it's not going to happen uh, we're going to see what happens of course as that unfolds in just a moment we're going to take on a conversation around imposter syndrome and i'm looking forward to that but i wanted to make time for an email today this is one from michelle you remember michael a while back sent me in an email about language and accents. And then we started talking about air Canada's CEO and his inability to speak French and the controversy around that. We had a great conversation on the show about bilingualism in business well, the mark of a really great conversation on Real Talk is when the ripple effect continues for weeks and weeks following. When we continue to receive audience feedback from those of you that have taken the time to check out the interviews in their entirety, like Michelle, who reached out to me a short time ago, said, Ryan, I've, uh, my entire family sat watching your episode where you took on the requirement to speak French said, I I liked your approach when you spoke at Lethbridge College that month. Thanks, Michelle. It's good to be growing our audience. She said, I'm not your typical equity, diversity and inclusion strategist, but I do believe in building community and avoiding divide. She says, as such, if we made people speak French in certain roles, you know, CEOs or otherwise, you close off those roles to newcomers to Canada, like me, who might speak languages other than English or French. Then you run the risk of the losing the innovation that comes from that diversity of thought. She says, I'm, I'm deeply critical of equity, diversity, and inclusion. Says My background, I'm from Northern Ireland, and I've seen what happens when ideology takes over And communication between people dies and it doesn't end well. Michelle says, a big shout out to Real Talkers across the country. Thank you for being an independent outlet that I actually want to listen to. How great is that from Michelle? A while back, we spoke to Panita McBrien as part of our top 40 under 40 Real Talk Roundtable. We facilitate a roundtable conversation every Friday. And I asked these three business leaders under 40 years of age, what it is that's inspiring them or what they're reading or what's driving their perspectives these days. And Panita mentioned imposter syndrome. In particular, she mentioned an article in the Harvard Business Review, Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome. Well, Ruchika Tulsian is the author Of the diversity advantage fixing gender equality in the workplace the founder of candor an inclusion strategy firm she's writing a forthcoming book about women of color at work called inclusion on purpose you can look for it in february of next year and she's a contributor to the harvard business review it's a real pleasure to welcome you to the program this morning thank you for making time for us and and welcome to real talk
0: Thank you, Ryan. So happy to be
1: here. Why don't we start without taking anything for granted? When we talk about imposter syndrome, what are we talking about?
0: Uh, So the term imposter syndrome uh, really came from um, two psychologists who in 1978, two female psychologists who uh, developed this concept of imposter phenomenon, and they posited that women... Uh, largely high achieving women, women who are ambitious, um, often feel like a fraud and they can't internalize their successes, even though objectively in the world, people, um, you know, say that they're very successful, they have a great job, or they're leading in different ways. And so this started in 1978, and essentially spurred off five decades. And I, you know, we've heard uh, Jodi-Ann Bury and I co-authored an article um, on imposter syndrome. I'm sure we'll talk in a lot of detail about it. But um, essentially, we've also heard from the founders of imposter phenomenon back in 1978. We've heard from them more recently. Uh, And it, it sounds like they didn't expect that, you know, five decades later, we would still be diagnosing women with this feeling of, you know, I'm a fraud, I don't belong here. I can't internalize my success. And I think what's really important to note about this is, in the five decades since imposter phenomenon was coined by these two psychologists, we have uh, found through various research points and, you know, actually data across the world that it's equally prevalent in men and women. Right, this idea of I'm not sure I, you know, I belong here. I'm not sure. I'm, um, you know, the right person for the job. They're going to find me out. I'm a fraud. I'm an imposter. Um, what is really also fascinating, um, despite showing that you know, data-wise, there really isn't a difference between the genders and how they experience or feel imposter syndrome, we still pathologize it in women. We still turn to women and we say to women, you know, you've got imposter syndrome. or women put it on themselves. Groups of women are created in conferences and things like that, where we all uh, band together on supposed imposter syndrome, rather than questioning what's the environment like if you're a woman and specifically if you're a woman of color, a racialized woman, as um, I know, you know, in Canada, we are called racialized women.
1: Not in the States, though.
0: No, women of color. In fact, the first time Someone tagged, in fact, our article uh, and wrote, "You know, I'm a racialized woman." It was a bit like, "Ooh, what does that mean?" And then I had to do a little bit of digging, asking folks, um, you know, who are DEI pra- D- diversity, equity, inclusion practitioners in Canada, who said that, yes, in in Canada, you know, women of color are called are often called racialized women. I.
1: Can I, I always hesitate to comment on stuff like this because, like, I'm a straight <laughs> white guy, you know, obvious yeah, reason. Yeah. But I hear I've, you. I've, can I just say fr- from the outside, with respect, I've always found the phrase racialized really weird. It seems yeah. really strange to me
0: yeah and given that you know y'all in Canada are supposed to be really polite and you're supposed to <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know have a better handle on these things supposedly so
1: very interesting uh, yeah. hey hey, listen uh, R- 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 Ruchika we're just going to actually take you off camera for a second because I'm very excited to be able to pair uh, Ruchika Tulichian, who we're talking about with Jodi Ann Beery yeah, who's who's the great. co-author of this piece in the Harvard Business Review so in about 30 seconds Sam's going to get both authors up on the screen and we'll broaden this conversation anymore. Really excited about this. Of course, both of them uh, commenting on how you end imposter syndrome in your workplace. And a great start there uh, from R- Ruchika on helping us understand what it is. Now we'll take it on, on, on what impacting change looks like. Um, how about this? I love this comment. I wanted to pop into the live chat to see what's going on right now. Uh, what this is? This is me buying Sam 30 seconds. We're just buying a little bit of time. So I pop in and Tricia says, hey, I only have a minute but I wanted to express how grateful I am for this live chat, how it's become a community. Says, I'm glad I have a place to come and exchange opinions whenever I can. That is unbelievable feedback. Trisha, good morning to you. And thanks for that. We're excited to to add to this conversation, the the voice of Jodianne Bury, who's a speaker, including a TEDx speaker, a writer, an entrepreneur, an educator. She's the creator, producer, and host of the podcast, Black Cancer. Jodianne holds a master's of public health from the University of michigan welcome to real talk and and thanks for making time for us this morning
8: absolutely happy to be here
1: we 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 just heard a a great uh sort of an explanation a cole's notes uh from rachika on on what imposter syndrome is and how to spot it so to speak. The two of you co-authored a feature, a couple of features in in the Harvard Business Review, including end imposter syndrome in your workplace. We could be talking about a company of two or three people or a company of 3,000. How do you know if it's an issue? How do you know if this is something that you really need to tackle starting now?
8: What I would say is a lot of people actually talk about it. And I think that's what's been so interesting about imposter syndrome, that we've taken it up in our society as something that feels much easier to say, I am suffering from imposter syndrome versus wow, my workplace is really racist. My workplace is really sexist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist, ageist, what have you. And so I think that people, if you just listen to what people are talking about, they're actually saying that they are experiencing imposter syndrome. Instead of looking at that as, you know, hey, you individual person, you should go be more confident, um, get some professional development somewhere. What employers should do is say, hey, if our employees are facing this, What are we doing? You know, what's going on in our culture? What is the water that our employees are swimming in? Why they continue to doubt themselves um, and not really are able to contribute their fullest talents to their work.
1: I love this. I mean, this, I guess in in the newspaper business, they'd call this a poll quote. This is what you'd grab and blow up in 36 point font in your piece in the Harvard Business Review. Fixing the places where women work instead of fixing women at work has become a rallying cry for women of all races across the world. Uh, Ruchika, I see you nodding your head and smiling. Do you see evidence that it's happening in meaningful and sustainable fashion?
0: I mean, I just think of the feedback that jodi Ann and I have received on this article. You know, it's been viewed now over a million times. It's um, in the top 100 most read articles in Harvard Business Review's history. Nice. And, um, you know, and, and these are numbers. And of course, that's exciting. But what has really been very meaningful is hearing from women of color around the world. I've heard from women in India it all over Southeast Asia, uh, you know, different parts of on the African uh, continent. And we it has been really meaningful to hear from women of color how and, and, and you know, and, and as well as white women, really uh, how it has shifted their connection with this concept of imposter syndrome. And I can really see how it has held so many women back. Right. Because of the way it has been. Pathologized, it really is, uh, you know, it's been inspiring to see that change happening.
1: Jodianne, an interesting conversation prompted by your piece on. How there's a real double standard in how people show up to work, and you can interpret that in a number of different contexts. I mean, whether it's how the CEO behaves, you know, whether, whether they're bombastic or a little bit more laid back, what the CEO or what the manager or the supervisor wears, whether it's a tailored suit or jeans and a hoodie. Can we dive into this angle and and how that's relevant? I mean, this, these are things that people might not think about. Whether it's a three piece suit or a hoodie, how that actually is keeping people down.
8: I mean, in many cases, sure. If you have a culture of your company where you have to look uh, a certain way, dress a certain way, present a certain way, then you have to decide, well, who gets to make those decisions and who leaves that out? Often, it's the leaders who say, well, this is most comfortable for me personally, or this is what I deem to be, quote unquote, professional, which often leaves out women, which often leaves out people of color and people of different socioeconomic statuses. These things are important, right? Because we you know, prioritize first impression. So, you know, if I'm wearing hoop earrings or if I'm wearing red lipstick, right? Or if my hair looks a certain way, the color of my skin, the language that I use, these can all, you know, if it doesn't ascribe to the dominant norm, these can all be indicators that I'm less than, that I'm not as smart, that I don't belong, that I'm not as capable, that I don't have these things called, quote unquote, executive presence. Um, We see in Silicon Valley, in the tech industry, where they have normalized a different way of presenting themselves we're being more casual, wearing the Patagonia vests, um, wearing the hoodies can actually symbolize something completely different. And so how we look, how we dress has a huge impact on maybe how comfortable we feel at work. But what I would argue, it goes deeper than just presentation. It goes deeper than just the language that we get to use, even though that is important. You know, what I'm looking at is the fact that as a Black woman who presents in this way, who looks this way, just by asking a question in a meeting can be seen as difficult, as threatening, as um controversial, as too assertive in ways that maybe my white male colleagues can present themselves the same way. And they're so charismatic, they have such leadership presence. Right. Um, they're so they're so so innovative in their approach. And so I'm looking at the contributions. I'm looking at the ability for people to contribute their talents as something that is as important as even just how you look at work.
1: That's such a great point. Um, the two of you in your piece challenge business leader. I mean, you challenge general society at large uh, to widen definitions of leadership and, and the words that we use to describe leaders. Um, so, R- Ruchika, what might be better choices of words to describe or, or as a parameter to evaluate leaders
0: yeah well a lot of research on leadership shows that actually a lot of what we want in our leaders isn't what's being rewarded today and that's empathy that's collaboration that's saying things like i don't know i'm not sure what the answers are but i'm going to communicate that with you when there was research done in the first three months of the pandemic on which countries and which societies were dealing with the pandemic in a in a proper and and in a way that really reduced harm, largely, overwhelmingly, those societies were led by women. We think of New Zealand, we think of Taiwan, et cetera, South Korea. And what we need to start doing is moving away from, you know, if you pound your fists and you show up in your power pose, you don't have imposter syndrome. Anyone else with any other leadership style isn't welcome here, right? So I would say, firstly, we need to make it okay to have healthy self-doubt. We need to make it okay for folks to be vulnerable, collaborative, empathetic, all of those things that we know women have often, and people of color have often been socialized to show, you know, for a variety of reasons in a racist society. And then on top of that, I think when we hear folks talk about imposter syndrome when we think about and we hear about women of color talk about imposter syndrome we need to press pause and say is that really imposter syndrome or is this something to do with the environment are you experiencing bias or is this really something that's internal so we need to shift that narrative
1: let me let me just circle back to the to the the whole bedrock of this conversation and and that is the the concept Or the phrase imposter syndrome. Uh, Jodianne, if you had your way, would people just drop that vernacular? I mean, do do you believe, I mean, is, is that just something people should just completely stop saying? Is it not a thing, period?
8: I think that seems like the easiest solution, that if we just take away language, then the feelings of that or the conditions that create that language would fall to the wayside as well. And that's not the case. We can use imposter syndrome. We can use another term. But that is not gonna change the condition. So what I would argue is that we have to be more precise with what we're talking about. I think of imposter syndrome as a proxy for what happens to you when you're in an environment that is racist, that is sexist, that doesn't see your full talents, that tempers your ability to fully contribute to the work that you're doing, that tempers your ability to thrive professionally. And so, imposter syndrome that imprecision can cloud the source of that doubt it can cloud the source of feeling like you don't belong and so what i would encourage people to do is to say if you you start hearing these proxy terms of you know i feel like i can't be authentic here or i'm suffering from imposter syndrome then to take a step back and say okay, when is that happening to you? Do you have a problematic manager who's ill-equipped to actually manage people, period, or ill-equipped to manage people who are different from them? Um, Do we not give enough voice to people who are underrepresented to fully show up and to contribute their talents to this work? Um, Is it sexism? Are you being drastically underpaid and then being gaslit saying that you're making the same or there's no issue with your pay, right? So I would just encourage us to be really precise with our language, because then that can get us to precise solutions that can actually do something about it, not just for an individual, but for people at scale and in a sustainable way.
1: Yeah, I love it. You, you know, you have it, in bold it, it, right on the page and, and people can check this out. I mean, if you want to people just search Harvard Business Review, imposter syndrome, and they'll find back to back pieces that are really informative, very well written, uh, a challenge in bold, quit gaslighting and listen. Ruchika, how people are going to say, oh, I'm not gaslighting myself. I'm not gaslighting my, my employee. What? That's not me. That's not our corporate culture. How are people gaslighting?
0: Oh, my gosh. All the time. I mean, really, just to build upon what Jodianne said, you know, it happens all the time. I've had instances where I've gone to a manager and I said, hey, you know how we do that six hour interview loop process where, you know, back to back, I had like you know six white men interview me and that didn't feel great. Um and I and I found out that my colleague next to me, the white guy, was hired because he's friends with so and so's, you know, whatever friend and um or the manager's friend. And you know, I would hear things like, oh you're that that's not the case. Everyone goes through the same process. And I would actually talk to the person and, and they'd be like, nope, I didn't go through the process. Or when it came to pay discussions, I mean literally across the board. Women of color have these conversations, and they're supposedly microaggressions. They're not microaggressions, they're not micro. They're certainly full on racial aggressions. And we are expected to put them aside, you know, think it's our problem, think it's all in our head. That's what gaslighting is. It makes you question your own reality. And that happens day in and day out for people who are underrepresented and
1: underestimated in the workplace. Jodiane, you want to add to that?
8: Yeah. So, you know, what's interesting about gaslighting is that I find that it's not very intuitive, the concept, like, why does gaslight mean the thing that it means? And it comes from this play back in the day where, you know, a husband wanted to drive his wife insane. So they had a gaslight and would just lower it every single day. And she's like, you know, honey is it dark in here? It's dark in here. Right. And he's like, no, it's not dark. And when that proceeds over time, it drove her insane because she is experiencing a reality that continues to get denied. And so as a woman of color in the workplace, that gaslighting can happen in super small instances. Is it dark in here? No, it's not dark. Hey, I'm dealing with imposter syndrome. I feel like, you know, my situation is because i'm black because i'm disabled because i'm whatever no you have no idea what you're talking about you're being too angry you're being too sensitive um you don't get what's going on here and when that happens enough you start to condition yourself that i'm the problem oh my gosh something's wrong with me i'm not smart i don't belong here i keep getting interrupted in these meetings well Maybe it's because I'm just not articulating myself well. You know, Bob is doing a much better job. He should get the promotion. Absolutely. And then our workplaces are just like, cool, you know, I don't have to do anything because this person has just now manipulated them themselves to see themselves as the problem and they're off the hook. And so this gaslighting thing, it's tiny, yes, but it happens so regularly with so many people over time, then we lose the sense of, well, then what do we do about it? And I think this concept of imposter syndrome adds to that because it clouds our judgment and clouds our ability to really see what is happening here. Um, And what I hope for other people like me and for people who are underrepresented is that we take just a second to stop blaming ourselves and just try to see what is actually happening and trusting our gut, our intuition of how we're being treated and how far we're able to go um, is not our own fault. Uh,
1: Jodi, I'll come back to you. And, and, and then, of course, uh, Ruchi, I want to get your take on this. There's, it, it's, you know, quite apparent that this pandemic has changed a lot uh, and, and we don't totally know. Uh, we don't know yet. We won't know until we look back 20 years from now, really on how dramatically it's changed society and the workplace and and dynamics between employees and how businesses operate and how people are promoted. Um, But there have been other factors at play aside from COVID-19. I mean, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, across the United States and certainly across Canada as well, um, had I think a, a transformative impact on on how many people evaluate situations around them, including the workplace. I can't comment on the United States, but I can tell you that over the past six months or so, five months for sure, in Canada, uh, we've been having tough conversations and gut wrenching, uh, and quite frankly, embarrassing conversations around our history of genocide with Indigenous people and our history of residential schools, and it's changing how a lot of people feel about many things, including government programs and in incentives and indigenous self-governance and sovereignty. And we're having a lot of these conversations. Do you see, uh, Jodi Ann, these impacts I've named or others uh, moving this forward in a positive direction? Do you see progress here? Are you encouraged?
8: Um, In the spirit of Tanahasi codes, I'm going to step away from, um, you know, fulfilling the need to be hopeful about the state of what's happening in our society, you know, in the United States and in Canada, as you're saying, when it comes to issues of race and Oppression um, across communities, across race and across ethnicities. And so I don't want to lean into a hopeful message. I don't necessarily feel hopeful or optimistic about these changes. I do acknowledge that there is a shift. There is a window that's open where we can do more than have conversations, but we can cement, you know, sustainable change and sustainable policy shifts in a more structural way that we can create more opportunities and create, you know, more instances where we can be honest about not only our history, but what what it will take to be successful in the workplace, professionally, what have you. And so I'm grateful that this window is open. I, you know, in a lot of ways that this window is closing and has created a lot of backlash that can, um, you know, compromise, you know, the gains that we've had over the past couple of months or the past few years since the pandemic or the global racial uprisings and support the movement for black lives. And so I think that everyone who's listening to this and all the people that, you know, we every single day have a decision to make on who we want to be, not just the conversations that we have, but the sustainable institutional and structural changes that we can put in place to make good on these values that we say that we have. If you say that you care about Black lives, if you say that you care about what has and what continues to happen to Indigenous people, then what are you going to actually do about that in a sustainable way where every year, every five years, every 10 years, whatever, we're not renegotiating, relitigating, you know, what our values, what we stand for and what we want to see. And so I'm only hopeful to the extent that people are going to reckon with their own values and what they're going to put structurally in place to make their values a reality.
1: I really appreciate that. Um, Richika, before we go to you, I want to add another, I probably should have mentioned, I mean, when we talk about societal movements, when we talk about trends, um, Probably the Me Too movement should also be referenced here because I think it it had a transformative impact on at least some industries. um, And at least it it addressed some of the people that I think have have been holding others down to say the very least. So maybe we'll add that into the mix. Your call. Um, Do you see progress on this file?
0: You know, as a journalist, I really care deeply about the fact that we have words to address some of what's going on. I grew up in a fairly conservative household in singapore as an indian woman and i do say you know i i can say that for decades a lot of what we have experienced whether it's misogyny whether it's racism there were literally no words for it and now you know when i hear from especially counterparts in singapore in other parts of asia um i i hear from asian women here who have language for the anti-asian violence and rhetoric that they have to worry about that they have to worry with their children going to school um, right now. And, and so the fact that we have language to talk about a lot of these things gives me some hope. Um, I do agree that the Me Too movement, uh, you know, opened the floodgates in many ways. Again, I want to I want to talk about how it's centered in many ways, the liberation of white women and not women of color. Um, I think there is much more that we can push on that lever. But the fact that we have language you know the me too movement is a great example of this where you know i can now say that um you know a man in the office standing too close to me it's not you know it's not gonna it's not something that unfortunately could kick off a legal complaint or whatnot but the fact that i could say that that is unacceptable and other people in my environment in my workplace could say yeah that is not acceptable is directly a result of the larger movement for change we've seen around the world very much led by black lives matter and me Too, the me too movement and more addressing of you know whether it's what we saw with uh, the way genocide in the indigenous communities i know we were watching those stories really closely here in the united states um of what was happening in canada so I feel hopeful that the global discourse is changing and we have language
1: for it now. I would love to wrap our conversation on that. You said that we we can pull that lever more on addressing some of the racial inequity to the, to the me too movement. Can, can I come right back to you on that? How do you, how do you pull the lever more? I want to ask both of you before I thank you for your time.
0: Jodianne.
8: <laughs> um, one of my favorite books on this is uh, called hood feminism. And it even took me, to task on who gets to define feminism, what are the solutions, what are the problems. We can look at gun violence as a feminist issue. We can look at child hunger as a feminist issue. There are a lot of different ways to interpret what's happening in our society through that feminist lens. And so who gets to determine that agenda? And so I think how we pull the lever on that is that we have to challenge ourselves, myself included, um, on who's setting that agenda, what are the the key issues and what are the key um, solutions? And, you know, even myself, I don't fully get to define that. And so I want to see more voices of not just folks of color, but Bring on more intersectionalities, you know, people of lower socioeconomic status, trans women, um, disabled women, and all of the intersecting oppressions and marginalizations that we have. What are those folks saying? What is most important to them? So we pull the lever by looking at folks who are in the community who are already doing the work, right? They have the resources. They have the platform to doing the work. How can we amplify that? How can we stand behind them, look to their leadership, trust their voice, trust their perspectives, and really champion for change through their lens? I think that is where we need to go. Keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper. Who is the most impacted by this? Let them set the agenda.
1: Richika, your body language is indicating that you agree wholeheartedly. Is there anything to add?
8: Absolutely.
0: Absolutely, in every way. And I want to what I want to add is that personal call to action, right? The importance of investigating, am I the right person to set the agenda? Am I the person who should be the spokesperson for this? You know, if I have privilege and influence and a platform, am I, you know, who else can I bring along with me whose voices isn't, you know, represented and isn't centered? How do I bring those voices along? Because I really think that where Uh, that lever hasn't been pulled far enough is when we only allow dominant group folks to set the agenda and lead the change. So I think we need to investigate in ourselves, where do we have privilege and influence? Where can we ensure that the platform is being shared? And it's centered around those, again, women most marginalized by
1: these issues. That's Rachika Tulshian. The author of The Diversity Advantage, Fixing Gender Equality in the Workplace. She's the founder of Candor, an inclusion strategy firm. And in February of next year, keep an eye out for her upcoming book about women of color at work, inclusion on purpose. Jodi-Ann Beery is a speaker. You can catch her TEDx speeches online, a writer, entrepreneur, educator, the creator, producer, and host of the podcast, Black Cancer. Make sure you subscribe today. Uh, Jodi-Ann holds a master's of public health from the University of Michigan. We're grateful for both of your perspectives this morning. Thanks for investing your time with us on Real Talk.
8: Thank you, Thank you so much. Thanks.
1: You can let us know how this has resonated with you. By sending us an email, I have no doubt this has got you thinking. It's got me thinking. That's the point. Talk at ryanjesperson dot com is how you can have your message wind up in our inbox. Of course, you can also hit us up on our hashtag #RealTalkRJ. That's powered by the team at Park Power, has been since day one and at parkpower.ca you can learn more about what it looks like when you get your internet electricity and natural gas from this local independent utilities provider including a feature on frequently asked questions so if you go online if you're a current customer you can find out okay well i deal with you guys but my power's out so who do i call or or my internet's not working what do i do Or, or how do i change my rate you're never locked in with park power if you're park power curious you want to know about the reliability of the utilities you want to know where the power comes from or what areas they serve or will your distribution charge be lower if you switch to park power all the answers are there and a reminder when you take your business to park power the promo code 2021 real talk gets you 70 dollars off your first bill Our friends at Local Waste Services, in addition to sponsoring Trash Talk every Friday here on Real Talk, are also keeping it local with regards to construction, commercial, and residential waste and recycling collection. I was walking my dogs yesterday. There's a house a few blocks away from us doing a total exterior overhaul. They're getting a new roof just in time for winter, and they're doing all their exterior siding. Imagine all the construction waste that comes with that. What do they have in front of their house? It warms the cockles of my heart. A big green local waste bin. Well done, neighbors. You can learn more about what that looks like, whether you need a temporary bin for a rental project like that, or whether you're a business owner that needs a bin full time. Outside your location You can get the details At localwaste.ca Another partner that we're really proud To be doing business with Is the team at Kubi Renewable Energy You can check them out online And get your free quote today At kubienergy.ca They're a full service contractor For residential and commercial Solar power systems They're doing a lot more work On farms these days You can get your free quote there At kubienergy.ca Keep in mind You can deal with them With the confidence of knowing they're tesla certified and all of their installers are either apprentices or have their tickets so it's a job that they and you can stand behind on our first show of every week our friends at kubi energy also get us started off on the right foot focused on the things that really matters it's a feature we call positive reflections Now, of course our hearts are in our throats as we watch the rescue efforts and more specifically recovery efforts continue in the province of british columbia this week we'll have updates on the show but the work is not done especially in abbotsford the fraser valley we're seeing some entire communities still six feet underwater but volunteers are stepping up in a huge way a big shout out we saw this on twitter to the dozens of volunteers at Surrey's duk Nivaran Sahib Gurdwara, cooking more than 3,000 meals for people stranded in hope, including hundreds and hundreds of truckers. They're paying for private helicopters to deliver meals, including cooked carrots and fruits, and they're going to say that they're going to keep those efforts going in the coming days. Now, that is truly amazing. We got this positive reflection from Sadiq, who sent me an email and he said, this is my first submission for positive reflections, especially after her posthumous top 40 under 40 award. I thought it might be good to chat about a friend of Real Talk, Julie Rohr this morning. Says I've been thinking quite a bit about her story over the last while and I have to confess that I, I didn't actually know her. And I only heard about her story through Real Talk and through social media says, I don't think you have to know somebody to be inspired by their story or to empathize with their struggle. And Julie's story reminded me of a quote from the late Stuart Scott's speech at the ESPYs, the ESPN Awards, in 2014. Quote, when you die, it does not mean that you lose to cancer. You beat cancer by how you live and why you live and in the manner in which you live. Sadiq says, from the small window I saw into Julie's life, she beat cancer each and every day. And I, for one, am extremely grateful that she was so open about her journey. That's from Sadiq. Thank you. And this one from Brian and Lori, who wrote in last week for Positive Reflections and said that Lori's ringing the bell today, her last cancer treatment. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. We need more about this story, about the background and they agreed. So we've waited a week to bring you this amazing story. Brian says, hey, I wanted to show you a photo of our COVID Christmas. This was coming up on almost a year ago. This was about four months before my beautiful wife's cancer was first discovered. The garden figures, the gnomes you see there, they represent our grandkids because we were unable to gather together as a family. We had a snowman building contest to keep the spirit alive. Then in April, Lori's cancer journey began. She was immune compromised, so we were forced to maintain every COVID protocol that left us unable to spend any time, of course, with our kids, our grandkids, and our own aging parents. The people that really deserve the shouts out today are the men and women that are working at the Cross Cancer Institute. They're the true stars. They bring hope to those that see no hope. The scary part is the amount of people that travel the same cancer path. Some will complete the journey. Some will go down fighting. Watching your soulmate endure treatments required to beat this disease is heartbreaking sitting alone in the parking lot when you're not allowed in due to covid leaves you way too much think way too much time to think but real talk kept my mind engaged and i thank you for that so lori's done her final treatment and now it's time for the true healing to begin our hope is that this christmas we'll see those benches around that same fire pit fully occupied with grandkids laughing enjoying each other's company our takeaway from this whole experience take nothing for granted don't be afraid to show someone how much you love them be slow to anger and quick to forgive and the most important thing never lose hope brian says so on behalf of Lori and myself we'd like to wish you your team and all real talkers a very merry christmas a happy new year peace and love that from brian and Lori. You can send us your positive reflections to our email inbox, talk at ryanjesperson.com, or shoot us an email. No, shoot us a tweet at realtalkrj. Coming up tomorrow, it's November 23rd. It's the first birthday for the show. It's the first anniversary of our very first episode. And so we're gonna mark it with a couple of what I think are gonna be incredible interviews. Canadian author, Malcolm Gladwell will join us. Prominent defense attorney, Marie Heinen will join us. Plus, we'll take a look at our question of the week results presented by our friends at Y Station. We asked you for your highlights of the year that was. We'll get down to the top five as voted by real talkers we thank you in advance for tuning into that very special episode make sure you tell everybody you know and make it a great monday friends we'll see you soon
2: real talk is hosted by ryan jesperson editorial producer sarah hoyles technical producer sam brooks managing director josh dunford account coordinator tanya franklin Merchandise operations, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website design, Mike Johnston. voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duveti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harman Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux. to Métis Settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.